actually got a very special guest. Kelvin Crombie has, uh, is an amazing man. If anyone's read any of his books, you'll know that he's a researcher and an author, but has uh, got a heart and a desire to discover more about this the, the um, Jewish background, and especially he's been at Israel many a time and takes teams over there. And I think John Sharp's been on one, and I think uh, um, young... Um, who went with you? Caleb went with you, yep. So um, where is he? Oh, there he is. Hey, Caleb. Beauty, mate. Oh, so you're going to enjoy today because as Kelvin comes and shares, it's going to be interactive, but he wants us to go into um, some of the meaning, especially behind the covenant, and he's got a few things he's going to share with us. Now, at the back table, he's got all his books. So if you would like to, after the service, purchase one of his books, please make sure you do. Um, and uh, if you haven't, I'm sure there's ways of, if you haven't got cash or something, I'm sure we can sort something out. But please have a look at the books. And I know it's old-fashioned to buy books, but okay, because you can scribble in books, um, and it makes you look smart when you've got them on your on your bookcase. Um, so, Kelvin, come up the front. Can I get one of you guys grab the uh, lectern for me over here and that bottle of water? Um, Kelvin, come up here, man, and uh, appreciate you coming. Kelvin is also going to be leading us on the Passover coming up on Thursday, which is also going to be an amazing experience for all those if you can get here. So let me pray, man, and uh, it's all yours, hey? Do what you need to do. Father God, thank you for the heart that you've given this man, for the ability and for the way that he can communicate that which he discovers and, and researches and finds. And Lord, we just ask now, that as he, his mind is so full with information, you will help us to hear the information that you want us to know today. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, boss. Thank All you. yours. There's your bottle of water. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity of being here with you. Um, I think I might take Steve along to be my PR man. Um, I'm just a boy from the bush. Grew up at a place called Babikin, about three hours inland from here, and always had a... Uh, a sort of mentality that I wanted to find out things. I wasn't satisfied with somebody else's answer. I wanted to find out things myself. So at the age of 21, I wanted to know what life was all about. I wanted to know the answer to life. So at the age of 21, I picked up and went over and lived in Israel. And I came to know the Lord over there. Met my wife. My four children were born there and lived there for about 25 years. I want to share just some of those experiences with you today. Uh, we're talking um, about covenant or on Friday or Thursday. We'll be talking more about covenant at the, the Passover meal. It's not just a Passover, it's a Passover and a Last Supper reenactment. So if you haven't signed up, um, come along, we'll have some fun. Um, we try to understand a bit more about the context of what happened in that upper room in Jerusalem. As you know, that was a Passover meal. A lot of things went on beforehand, of course. Um, if you're a Jewish person living in the Middle East in the first century, um, you had a, a pretty good memory. Uh, for the boys, for instance, they all knew their scriptures much better than most of the folks here who go away to five years in seminary. In those days, most Jewish boys knew their scriptures inside out and back to front. They knew their history, not just way back to Abraham and Moses and David, but they knew their modern history as well. A lot of the things which happened in the first century, the time that Jesus came, were based upon things which happened in the previous 150 to 200 years. 
Um, there was a civil war, a very, very terrible civil war, actually, in Israel at that period of time. They defeated the, the Greeks in that period of time. There was lots of things happening which you don't see written straight out in the scriptures, but they are there behind. And so what we try to do uh, in the various presentations and also on Thursday night is bring out a little bit of that background to help us understand what was going on in that upper room. But because before they get to the upper room, there was the events which happened on this particular day, what we call Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday, sorry, Palm Sunday, when Jesus came in to Jerusalem. We've heard a bit about it already. We saw the, the video a clip of it. There's an interesting little thing though that uh, the video clip is not completely accurate, especially when it comes to portraying Jesus. He didn't have the peyot. Now, if you see an Orthodox Jewish person, he has the peyot, okay, which is the, the hair, which is in front of the ear. Well, I didn't see that on the scripture, but Jesus, being an Orthodox Jew, he would have had the peyot as well. Now, let us look briefly at what happened there, because that sets the context of what I'm going to say today. And it also sets the context for Thursday night. So let's just go to Matthew 21 and read briefly from that. Now when they drew near Jerusalem, Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah and Zechariah too. There's two scriptures in. Oftentimes with, uh, in the New Testament, like you see, they've spliced several scriptures together, which is a very rabbinic Jewish thing to do in the first century. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So already we have a bit of a hint here of something that's happening. Uh, it's not just the fact that Yeshua, Jesus, is coming from Nazareth. Uh, the fact is also he is the king and the people were expecting a king and the king can only come from the family of King David. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes went before, and those who followed cried out, not Hosanna, they would have cried out, Hosanna. It's two words, Hosanna, which means save us, please, to the son of David. Okay, so here we actually have, it's already mentioned previously, the, your king, okay, and there we have the king is the son of David. Baruch haba blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshana, save us please in the highest. Now if we look at the other um, parallel scripture in, in Luke, Luke, 20, Luke 19, sorry, verse 37, it says, Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, and if you come on one of the tours, okay, you go there and you'll see where all this happened. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, reference to the King. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Rabbi, 
rebuke your disciples. Why? Because Jerusalem in those days was chock-a-block full of Roman soldiers. And the Romans were paranoid that if there was going to be an insurrection, it would happen at the time of Passover, the time when the Jewish people were expecting the deliverer to come more than any other day of the year. The last things they wanted was the Romans to get a little bit antsy. And many times the Roman soldiers were antsy because they were anticipating. And when you're in that situation of anticipation, you can actually do something uh, that you shouldn't really do. So the, disciples, the, the rabbis didn't want anything which would cause the Roman soldiers to be presumptuous. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these... What did I say? Sorry, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples... He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus wasn't going to stop them from making their proclamation. He was the king. He was from the family of David. He was the son of David. Now on Thursday we'll flesh that out a little bit more as we look at the background of Passover and we look at what actually happened in the upper room on that evening. But for now, I want to go and look a little bit more at David because there's reference here to David, the son of David. The Messiah is going to come from the family of David. So it's a bit of a... It's very important, I think, for us to understand a little bit what was going on in the minds of the people at the time. Now, we're sitting here uh, 20 centuries later. We've got all our fancy Bibles and apps and whatever else, and we've got all these wonderful Bible colleges we can go to. In the first century, people didn't have those things. All they had was the scriptures. And the scriptures was not the New Testament. The scriptures that people had was what we call the Old Testament. So whatever people understood, they knew from the scriptures and their history. So we sometimes actually have to go back in time and space and look at how people were seeing things at that time. So what did they think of David? Let's just look briefly at the, the life of David. And I'll give you a warning beforehand, there's going to be a little bit of interactivity later, and I'm going to call forth a couple of people from the audience. So I don't want to put you on, uh, on, um, in panic mode, but uh, just to keep you in mind that that's what's going to happen. So when it came to David, the calling of David, and this is the foundation of it all, we have the fact that, first of all, Saul became king. He didn't succeed as king because he wasn't a king after God's own heart. The people had wanted a king according to all the nations, what the nations had. And that wasn't what God had in mind. So with Saul, Shaul, it didn't work out. And Samuel, who was the, the key person at this time, he was a bit distraught. It didn't work out. And he was probably just um, moping around the place a little bit. And then the Lord said to him in 1 Samuel 16, um, uh, how long will you mourn for Saul? See, I have rejected him from, from reigning as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil, and that means very special oil, an anointing oil. And the word anointing in Hebrew is mashach, from where we get the word mashiach, from where we get the word messiah, from where we get the word Christ. So already at the very, very beginning, if you read this in the Hebrew, you can see, Oh, something very interesting is going to happen here. Okay, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Yishai, the Bethlehemite. Okay, a man called Yishai, Jesse in the English, who lived in Bethlehem. 
For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, I'm not going to go through the rest of the story because we all know it. We learnt this story in primary school. So he comes. Now, what does he come with? He comes with his horn filled with oil. But the Lord said to him, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Yeshai to the sacrifice. Now, when you have somebody of Samuel's ilk coming to town with a oil, with a, a flask of oil, you might say a horn of oil, very special anointing oil on one hand, he's bringing a heifer. It's no ordinary event that's happening. This is not going to be an ordinary barbecue. This is something very special. This is Samuel coming to town. And he's to invite the family to the sacrifice. It's going to be no ordinary meal that they have as well. And so we go through the story and then Samuel says, listen, I want to uh, look at your sons, he says to Yeshai. And so Yeshai brings his sons because by this stage Samuel is aware that one of those sons is going to be the replacement for Shaul. He's going to be the king of Israel. So here they came. In verse 7 it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance. Okay, it's when the sons began to come forward. Or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he's already made Samuel very, very clear that the sort of person he's looking for is not somebody with the appearance of a king, which Saul had. So Yishai called Abinadab. And made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Okay, that was the second of the sons. And then slowly he goes through all the different sons. And then Samuel said, are these all the young men there are? And Yishai said, there remains yet the youngest. There he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Yishai, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Sit down to do what? Have a meal. He's bought the sacrifice. He's bought the, the heifer. It's going to be a sacrifice. And that society, if you do that, you're going to have a meal. So we're not going to sit down for the meal until he comes. So the sent and brought him. Now he's ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, mashach oto, anoint him. For this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, the special oil that is used for the anointing. And he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, I'm a younger brother, and I always like this one, because here we have the younger brother being anointed in front of all the older ones. So, younger brothers, this is your trump card. Anoint him in the midst of his brothers. And that's what happened. Samuel anointed the youngest son to be the king of Israel on that occasion in the midst of the brothers and, of course, everybody else that was there. What's so wonderful, it says then, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So in the eyes of God, when was David made the king of Israel? Right then? Right at that point. Had the people accepted him yet as king? Not yet, but in the eyes of God, he was king at that point. And the, the seal of the anointing was the Spirit of God who came upon him. 
I say these things to keep them, so you can keep them in mind because this actually fits into our storyline later and it helps us to understand more about the background to the Passover when we get there on Thursday. So we have this incredible event. Now it doesn't tell us what happened after that on that occasion. It doesn't tell us that they had a sacrifice and they had a meal. But the psalmist does because the psalmist in Psalm 89 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Now what we have to realise is that you never make a covenant. I just used the English translation there. The Hebrew translation says, I cut a covenant with David. Okay, And so whenever you're going to have a covenant, you have to have a sacrifice. It's already told us it's going to be a sacrifice. And there's going to be a meal. There's a whole lot of things which will happen with a, with a covenant. Covenants are never made. Covenants are only cut. There needs to be a sacrifice. As there was a sacrifice when God cut the covenant with Abraham. With the Israelites at Mount Sinai, there was a cutting of a covenant because there was sprinkling of the blood. So to here, with a covenant with David, there was a sacrifice. There was the cutting of the sacrifice. And we don't know exactly what happened with the blood. Sometimes um, the yes, sacrifice would be made, the animals would be split apart, there'd be blood on the ground, the two parties would walk up and down between the pieces and would say, may it happen to me as it's happened to this animal if I break this covenant. In some occasions, the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on the people. It's a very, very important component of how covenants were cut in antiquity. And that's the background for the new covenant that we're going to look at on Thursday, because the covenant was also cut. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 31, also emphasised in Hebrews, the words that Jesus spoke. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The context of that is, according to the original scriptures, a covenant would be cut. So there's always a sacrifice, there's always the shedding of blood. So this happened also here in the covenant that God now cut with David. So David is now the king. The people haven't recognised him yet as the king. It's also important for us to realise as background. So what happened thereafter? Well, we've all grown up with the story of Samson and Delilah. We've also grown up with the story of David and Goliath. We learned those things in primary school. So we're just going to look briefly at this now because it's a wonderful, wonderful picture of Jesus and what happened later in his life. Now, in those days, you had the Israelites living up in the hill country, and the Philistines living down in the low country. And there was often conflict between the two. And on one occasion, they came up against each other at a place called the Valley of Elah. Now, in those days, there were several ways you can fight a battle. You could have two armies that would come against each other, and there'd be a lot of fighting, and guess who wins? Well, the undertaker wins. Because at the end of that, there's lots of dead bodies around that have to be buried, so the undertaker wins, Okay. Now, there's a simpler way. That is to say, each side would choose a representative. One person who would go to fight the other, and whoever wins of those two wins on behalf of his team, his side, his clan, his nation. It's much easier. The, under, the undertakers weren't too happy with that idea. But I'm sure the mothers and the wives were much better with that idea because they might get their sons and their husbands coming back from the battlefield. And so that is what's going to happen here. 
you had the two groups, the Israelites on one side of the Valley of Elah and the Philistines on the other side. Of course, if you come on, uh, on a, a tour at any time, you can actually go and you can see this and you can imagine how the battle would have been. The Philistines had their one representative man. What was his name? Goliath. The Israelites, well, who was their representative? Can you all tell me, who was their representative? It's silent because there was no representative Israelite. Strange, isn't it? Because the Israelites said, we are the people of God. We are the nation that God has entered into covenant with. Yet they could not find one person willing enough to go out and fight against the giant called Goliath. Now, who should have been the representative? Who should have gone out and been ready to fight Goliath? Saul and who else? If not Saul, because he was a bit long in the tooth, who else? Jonathan, the crown prince. He should have said, Dad, now you're a bit long with the tooth, mate. Uh, well, Dad, um, I'll go out and take your place. But neither of those two went out. Well, why not one of David's elder brothers, the big strapping ones? Why didn't they go out? Well, it doesn't say it so much here, but I think they're all cowards, physically speaking. And who wouldn't be? Hey, listen, I'm sure we'd all be the same. How big was Goliath? Big bloke. Massive. So anyhow, that's the stalemate. Every day, the representative Philistine would go out and taunt the Israelites. And the Israelites would sit there and cower away. And it got to a point when David, the one who's been anointed by God to be the king, comes down to visit his brothers. They gave him a bit of a hard time. That's what big brothers do anyway. It's just built into their DNA. So anyhow, what happens? David sees this. And he's, he's dumbstruck. He's, how can this be? And he goes to, the, to his brothers, he goes to Saul, and the ultimate conclusion was, well, I'll go out and do it. None of you guys can do it. I'll go out and do it. And so Saul then puts him into the armour, which any normal person would fight in. Any normal person except for David. And he takes it off and says, no, no, it doesn't suit me. You have to use the armour that's suitable for you. Use what's suitable for you. Not for somebody else. It's just a lesson we can learn, actually. So anyhow, this is what goes on. So what happens when David steps out? What do you think his brothers are thinking of him? Well, he's not only going to get killed. That whippersnapper, that, that, that youngest brother, what do you think he's doing? And when he steps forward, what were all the other Israelite men thinking? Well, I can tell you what I think they were doing. Note paper out. Last letter home. You see, you've got to understand the dynamics here. If you went out to battle as a representative man, you were fighting not for yourself, but for your, your people, your country. You are representative. You are representing a larger group of people. And so if David lost this battle, everybody whom he represented, with the whole of the Israelite army, would have to become a POW. Would actually have to, according to the rules of, of war at the time, would actually have to become subservient or slaves to the Philistines. Now, nobody had faith or confidence that this runt, 
and he is a runt compared to the elder brothers, size-wise, this runt was going to win the battle. So I think they're all sitting there writing their letters home to mum and dad. Now, what I'm going to do at this stage, I'm going to separate the congregation into two halves, and I want to have two people to come out. I'm going to volunteer Steve and John. Okay, Steve, if you come, come forward. So this side here is going to be the Philistines. So, sorry, Steve. Where are you, John? And my mate John, you are the Israelites over there, and you're going to be David. Come on, come on. Right Listen, play it up, play it up. Come on, keep it going. What's that? What are you doing? What are you? Did I tell you Goliath was ugly? Before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rightio, so now, Philistines, how are you reacting when you see this little... Um, sorry, mate, we, we'll be mates again later, okay? How are you reacting when you see the runt come out? Hey, happy you, saying, what is this coming... Okay, okay, so, easy win, okay? And you're thinking already of the booty and the bounty and the things that you will get, right? Now, the Israelites, what are you thinking when you see... Little David coming out. Yeah. Okay. Right out. So do, are you getting the picture? You're getting the picture. And so let's just keep going on with the storyline. We'll read a bit here. Okay, now I've got to get up there, I suppose. So, verse 38, chapter 1, 7, uh, Samuel 17. So David... Saul clothed David with his armour. No, that didn't work. And so David decided now he'd go out and fight by himself. Verse 48. So it was, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, take your hand in your bag, mate, and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine, the big bad bloke over here, in the forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead and he fell down on his face. On your face. Right, there you go. There he is. Hang on. No, no, no. You, no, no, no you, you stay there. You stay there. So David prevailed... David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but just to be sure. There was no sword in the hand of David, therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head. Be careful. <laughs> Radio. No, I, we, haven't told you, we haven't told you to get up yet. Okay, so uh, who's observing this? Is this done in secret, in a hideaway place? Both armies. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, what did you do? You fled. You didn't play by the, by the rules. Now the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and fled. Now, before we go any further, before I read the next part, don't forget that 10 minutes before, five minutes before, half an hour before, what were you all doing? Okay, you were in trepidation. You were hiding. You were fearful. You were 
physical cowards. Now, I don't think I'd be any different. Okay, so I'm not putting myself above this. This is just the reality. You had no confidence in your representative. No confidence at all. This is what happened then. Verse 52. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. So this is a very interesting dynamic. I think you can get up now, Goliath. Thank you, fellas. You did a good, great job. Now the men of Israel arose, and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistine as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. This is very, very interesting. How could you suddenly go from being a mob of cowards and then suddenly rising up and shouting and taking off in hot pursuit? What gave you the right to suddenly turn from being a mob of cowards to a mob of pursuers? What have you done for the victory? You've done absolutely nothing. Your representative man has done it all. He's done 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100, and you have done absolutely zilch. Yet who is now capitalising upon the victory won by your representative man? You have. Well, you can't say anything because you fled. You weren't playing by the rules as well. But it's just an example. Do you see what we're getting at here? A representative man. And this is something which was fairly common in that society, not just in Israelite society, but in general all the way around. It was the concept of the, of the representative man. Now, when it comes to covenant, when a covenant was cut between two entities, be it God and Israel or between two individuals or two families, there's a whole lot of things that go on in a covenant. And we'll touch more upon, upon those things on Thursday because it fits into the context. But I want to give you a taste. One of the most important things is that whereas previously there were two entities in a covenant, when the covenant is cut and the sacrifice is made and then they have the common meal, what that signifies is whereas there was once two, there is now one. Two halves emerged into one. So when that sacrifice, for instance, was, was made and the animals cut in two and separated, afterwards there would be a meal and the animal would be taken away and cooked up and served. And the two entities entering into that covenant would eat from a common bowl, basically signify that whereas once there were two, now there is, there's one because we're eating from a common bowl. Now, one particular time when I lived in, in Israel, I lived in an Arab village, a Muslim village called Silwan, called Siloam in the Bible, the Pool of Siloam. And I had a Muslim landlord, Mr. Badun. And when I used to go to pay the rent, many times I'd just like to have it in an envelope and give it to Mr. Badun and then go because I had things to do. But no, that wasn't the way to do it. I'd have to go in and we'd go through a whole rigmarole, basically, at the end of it. His wife would bring out a nice big bowl Machlubi, okay, chicken upside down, we call it, and two massive big spoons, one for Mr. Badun and one for me. And we'd actually have to eat this meal together. And then he would say, No, my Kelvin, are there any problems? And that was the time we would discuss 
problems between tenant and landlord and so on and so forth. We might have been chatting before, but it was really at that time when we were actually eating together. And that's just a sort of a throwback from that ancient custom of the covenant. The two entities then coming together for a common meal. To signify that once there were two, but now there is one. And what we have to realise in this story and in what we're going to be looking at on Thursday is that when Jesus came and he died, he was a representative man. He was a representative Israelite because that new covenant is made with the house of Israel. So there needs to be a representative man, as it was Abraham, as it was Moses, as it was David. They represented a greater number of people. And so too for the new covenant to be instituted, there needed to be a representative man. He needed to be a true blue Israeli. He needed to be a true blue Jew. He needed to be a circumcised Jew because the new covenant is being made or cut with the house of Israel. It couldn't be a Gentile. It couldn't be a convert. He had to be a true blue Jewish person. And Jesus was just that. And so he came. He came as the representative. But he's also the representative of God because he's fully man and he's fully God. It's God cutting the covenant. The covenant was cut. And the thing about covenants is that the two shall become one. In a marriage covenant, what happens there? The two become one. It doesn't mean that the wife stops being a female and the husband stops being a male. Okay? We come together as one and we retain our distinctiveness. Yet in the eyes of God, when he looks down, he sees us as one. And society will look upon us as one. And so too with the covenant. When we come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, when we come to believe that Jesus is the second Adam, when we come to believe that Jesus took the death penalty that was due upon us, because we all deserve the death penalty because we are in Adam. So whatever Adam did, okay, by view of nature and by view of our understanding of the scriptures, whatever Adam did affects us because we are in Adam. We are all descendants of Adam. And so when Jesus came and took the penalty of death that was due to Adam, which then came to us, when Jesus took that penalty of death upon himself as a representative man, he didn't need to, you see. This is the most amazing thing about it. Jesus did not need to die because he never broke any of God's laws, his Torah. He fulfilled it completely. So he didn't need to die for himself. If he didn't need to die for himself, who was he dying for? For us, he's a representative man, just as David was. Okay, And then he rose again from the dead to show that death had no hold over Jesus. He couldn't, legally speaking. So Jesus rose from the dead. And what happened thereafter is that any person at that time and later who confesses faith in Jesus, that Jesus actually took that death penalty that was due for me, that Jesus took that death penalty, when I believe that, I enter into covenant with Jesus. He's done it all. He's my representative man. I can be like the Israelites. I can actually soak up the fruits of the victory. I didn't do anything for it, but I then have come into a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's what covenant is all about, which then means that the fruits of the victory also belong to me. 
The two shall become one. So everything that Jesus has done is now mine by the principles of covenant. Just as what happened with David and the Israelites. That, folks, is the good news. And that is what it's all about. That is what we have to understand when we look at um, the institution of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. When we look at our faith in Jesus, we have to understand these principles of covenant. And the most wonderful thing about it is that absolutely everything that Jesus did, legally speaking, is now ours. He died, took the penalty, he rose. Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. Well, when was Paul ever crucified with Christ? Never happened. But because of that aspect of covenant relationship, it did. He was with Jesus on the cross, and so were you, and so was I. But we're also there when he rose from the dead. That's the fruit of the victory. Just like the Israelites gained the fruit of the victory of David, so we too have the fruits of the victory that were gained by Jesus and by Jesus alone. Not one of us that's here. Not one of us. It doesn't matter how good looking we are, like Steve. It doesn't matter how wealthy we are, like John. It doesn't matter how prestigious we are, like everybody. That doesn't count for a bean in the eyes of God. What counts for anything in the eyes of God is that we are one with Jesus. And when he looks down, when God looks down from his throne, he doesn't see us, he sees this. Who's this? What's your name? Scott. He sees Scott together with Jesus, one in covenant union with Jesus. So we're going to take the communion now. And when we do take the communion, just keep in mind who it is that's won the victory for you and won the victory for me and who we now are in the eyes of God. We are one in his son, Jesus. Thank you.